We'll open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. While you're turning there, you will remember, I trust, that we are taking the summer to study God's glory in marriage and the family and in our roles in singleness and the ways that God has called us to serve him in unique ways. This is one of those sermons that I finished actually on a plane yesterday. And I kind of uh, looked at my notes and thought, well, we'll see how far we get. And uh, hopefully there's sausage links that we can just find one and stop if we don't get through all of this. Because this is really, really foundational, important text for us to cover today. Ephesians chapter 5, you'll know this well if you know the book of Ephesians at all. But rather than pick it up where you might anticipate in verse 22, I want to go back to get the full context in verse 18. I'm sorry, verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, Ephesians 5, 15. Not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father And be submissive or subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but... I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. One of the most surprising biblical curiosities happens in the first two chapters. You don't need to turn there. Just let me highlight that for you. 
There's a rhythm and a cycle that you hear when you open up the first chapter of the Bible. God creates, God assesses. God creates, God assesses. God creates, God assesses on six consecutive days. In Genesis 1-4, God saw the light was good. In verse 10, God saw that it was good. In Genesis 1-12, God saw that it was good. Verse 18, God saw that it was good. Verse 21, God saw that it was good. Are you hearing a rhythm? Verse 25, God saw that it was good. And at the very end, verse 31, God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. You turn to Genesis 2, which is a detailed description of the creation of man and you find out something that's theologically shocking, frankly. Everything is good. This is before Genesis 3. The fall hasn't happened yet. And we read in Genesis 2.18, Then the Lord said, It is not good. What? It is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. Behold, it is good. And then he stops and says, wait a minute. Something is not good. He's looking at his perfect, his innocent creation and assesses that it is not good. Listen to the full sentence. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a suitable helpmeet or helper for him. It was not good for the man to be alone. So God created the perfect, suitable helper for him, for Adam. God created woman. God created Eve. If you go on, it's really interesting because God gives him a task before he creates the woman. In Genesis 2, 19, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Now, this was not just an exercise in birds and cats and fish. This was, this was something more that was going on. Whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to the beasts of the field for Adam. But for Adam, there was not found a suitable helper to him. We find out in that last phrase, God did not just intend for him to name all the animals and the the categories and the species. He wanted to see something was missing. I mean, think about it. Here, God brings all the animals and Adam, knowing that there's a difference between male and female, says buck, doe, bull, cow, tiger, tigress, lion, lioness, ram, you, gander, goose, rooster, hen, stallion, mare, he, wolf, she, wolf, Adam, Man and animals. The text indicates that Adam was given the task of naming the animals so that he would see there's male, female, male, female, male, female, and me. So, verse 21, the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. 
and he took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Now, single men, this is not a dating tip. Just go to sleep and see what happens. This is something supernatural. So Adam wakes up. The divine anesthetic had no hangover. He wakes up, pops up. I'm sure the, the, uh, the, the wound in his side had healed miraculously and instantly. He's looking at all the animals. I just picture this, all these, you know, this, this beautiful 12-point buck and this, this doe and this, this bull elk and this cow elk and this tiger and this tigress. They're all kind of looking around and Adam's looking around. And then just as a groom looks down the aisle at his bride on a wedding day, God says, what do you think of Eve? The man said, this now is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She's like me. She's not a critter. She's not an animal. She's a person like me. And he brought her to the man. God performed the first wedding. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is a critically important narrative in God's word. It is no accident. It's in the first two chapters. It's no accident that it was the crown jewel of God's creative acts on those first seven days of the creation. Paul picks up on this important narrative here in Ephesians 5 to explain the importance of and to explain the function of marriage. In fact, the section on the family in Ephesians 5 and 6 follows chapter 1 verses 9 and 10 that tells us that God's intention is to sum up all things in Christ. Everything has a Christological purpose. It's to be summed up in Christ. It's to find fulfillment in the gospel. It's to find fulfillment summed up in who Christ is and what he's done for us as his children. That includes unity with his people in the book of Ephesians. That includes looking to the future in the right way. It includes fighting sin. It includes harmony within the Christian family between races and backgrounds. But the climax is that it includes summing up all things in Christ in how a man and a woman, a husband and a wife interact with one another and represent and mirror, parrot the gospel. This passage before us that we're going to to look at uh, from, from the husband's perspective this week, in just a few weeks we're gonna look at it from the wife's perspective. We're gonna divide it out a little bit even though we'll double dip on both as we're going through, really shows a high altitude flyover of what marriage is intended to be. And if you boil it down, marriage is intended to function with first of all, loving leadership and second of all, trusting submission. A husband is supposed to exercise loving leadership and a wife is supposed to exercise trusting submission. We'll come back to that in just a few weeks, the trusting submission for today. I want us to look more carefully at 
Our role, men, as husbands, as loving leaders. If you are an unmarried man, you are so blessed to be able to get this data and this information from God's word before you start into a marriage. This is all practical. Secondly, if you're, if you're not a husband, no matter what your condition is, no matter what your state is, no matter what your role is, you can pray for us as God lays it on pretty thick in this passage for us. Let's break it down and look at six commitments of loving leadership. Six commitments of loving leadership. The first is the one I'm gonna tell you in advance will take us the most time to deal with because it's frankly the most controversial and the most neglected. A commitment, number one, to headship. A commitment to Headship. Now, in order to understand headship, we have to start with the bigger, the greater context. That's why I read a, a, a bigger section than we're studying. Paul is giving general and specific instructions. He's providing implications and applications about being filled with the Spirit. Pleroma, filled with the Spirit, means to be moved along. It was used of a, of a wind that would fill a sail, a sheet, and move a ship along. That's what it means to be moved by, influenced by, filled with the Spirit. Do not get drunk with wine, verse 18 says, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. He's contrasting. Yes, this is talking about not being drunk, it's a sin to become drunk or intoxicated with any kind of mind-altering substance. But Paul uses that as a reference point to say, don't be influenced. Don't turn the influence of your mind over to a substance. Put the influence of your mind underneath the, the powerful influence of the Spirit of God himself. Speak to one, in psalms, to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. He says when, you, when you're filled with the Spirit, it, it just comes out of you. One of the things you do is you sing. You sing deeply. You sing richly. This is another sermon for another time. I know Aaron spoke on this a few weeks ago, but let me just say it as, as specifically and as, as intently and as intentionally and as graphically as I can. A Christian who does not sing is disobedient. A Christian who does not sing fully is disobedient. We sing not because that's a task. We sing because there's so much in our hearts being full of the influence of the Spirit of God. It, it just comes out in songs. Even if it's a joyful noise, it comes out in songs. And that's another sermon for another time. But the final part of this section is the hinge into the section on the family here in Ephesians. Verse 21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. One of the most misunderstood interpretive passages in the New Testament. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Again, the context is in the discussion of being spirit-filled. And being spirit-filled is simply being led, directed, and controlled by the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of God, rather than our own impulses and desires or any foreign substance entered into our body. Verse 21, there is a mutual submission that Paul talks about here though. Submit to one another. Subject yourself to one another in the fear of Christ. In other words, 
accountability before each other to submit to each other by submitting to Christ in a spirit-filled life is just mutual Christian accountability. Submit to one another in reference to what it means to follow the influence of the Spirit of God. Now, some take this, and we'll come to this in in a moment, looking at a, a big word called egalitarianism. Some take this verse to say, see, there is no specialized case in which a woman, a wife submits to her husband. Everyone submits to each other. I had someone recently tell me that submission is a two-way street in a marriage and that there's not really a leader. It's mutually submission and that's what Paul means here. The problem is if you know English grammar, it doesn't work. If that was the case, he would not follow it up with the next verse, nor would he exclude husbands then being specifically directed to submit to their wives later in the passage. Yes, we submit to one another in the fear of Christ. Any, any child, any woman, any person in our body here at Mission Road has the, the invitation and the right and the privilege to ask me to submit to God's word, to ask anyone else to do that underneath the fear of Christ. And that's just mutual accountability to walking in the spirit of God. However, something changes in verse 22. Paul makes a distinction between believers living lives that submit to one another as moved by the spirit of God. And he looks specifically at wives. Now this is significant. And if you have a new American standard, this will show up. Uh, the Greek, in the Greek, the word submit is not in verse 22. It's borrowed from verse 21. That's significant. He says, we all are subject to one another. We all submit to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives do that. They take that general admonition to submit and they have a specific application of that to their own husbands. And they do so as to the Lord. Now we're going to come back in a few weeks and look specifically and strategically about all that that means and all that that does not mean. But for now, we want to look at the husband because to submit to a husband means that the husband is now operating in headship. Okay, let's, let's talk about it for a minute. Please, please, please. If you're ever confused by this, send me an email or, or ask me, if, if, especially if we use terms that are unfamiliar. There are two broad categories of theological application that you need to be very well acquainted with. And I know most of you are, but let's just take a refresher course. There's a theological perspective called complementarianism. And there's a theological perspective called egalitarianism. Let me make it really simple. Complementarianism complement, complete, is men and women were, believes that men and women, listen very carefully, were created in essence equal as image bearers of God. A man is no more an image bearer of God than is a woman or vice versa. The image of God uniquely rests on men and women in a way that it doesn't the animal kingdom. However, Even though we are equal in essence as image bearers before God, we are distinct in our roles and functions, specifically in the church and in marriage. 
As we'll see in a moment, this was God's design in the creation. He actually, to the Corinthians, is going to say, this mirrors the Trinity. Complementarianism, which is what our, whole, our church firmly holds to and firmly believes, believes that God created men and husbands specifically to be the leaders and the heads of their homes and women to follow in helpful submission in a way that glorifies God and brings them joy. On the other side is a theological perspective called egalitarianism. Egalitarian from Latin equal. This is the perspective that says God created male and female equal in all respects. There is little to no limitations or distinctions between men and women specifically in regard to marriage and the church. That's where the application is most fleshed out. So we'll use those terms as we go through uh, this series. Just remember what they are. Complementarianism is meant that, that the, uh, the, the, the man is given headship and the woman uh, was created to be a suitable helper to him. Egalitarianism is that God created men and women not only equal in essence, which he did, but he also created them equal in function and it doesn't matter who does what. They can do equal things to each other and sometimes the woman can take the headship and the man can take the submissive role. Again, our church and this series will take a decidedly and unapologetically, a biblically informed and defined complementarian position as will be explained by, listen, the plain reading of Scripture. So Paul says, wives, and he borrows the verb be subject to or submissive. Just as we submit to one another, wives specifically do that to and with your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, we are going to study in great detail in just about three weeks, I think, what it means for a woman to do this and what are the limitations and the, the fringes of that and the, the sweet spot of what that means. But for now, I wanna isolate the position and expectations God has for a Christian husband. The reason a believing wife is called to submit to her husband is rooted in the theological reality of the husband's headship. Look at verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. A little aside, he himself, Jesus himself, being the savior of his bride, the body. Key word rendered submit or be subject to has to do with subordination of someone in an ordered array to another who is above them in position, not in essence. We'll talk about this more in a few weeks, but I just find it really interesting that coming out of the women's liberation movement in the 60s, how most of us in every society have no particular problem in submitting to authority except in this category did any of you on your way to church this morning when you stopped at a traffic light it turned red and you said I don't need to submit to that I pay taxes that's my red light I am going to assume and identify that it's green and just ignore it and plow through. Of course you don't. 
all of society, all of, Peter says in 1 Peter 2, all of human relationships and institutions are built on the simple idea that there are leaders and people that come under that leadership. The idea of submission is the notion here of order and position. God has ordained and God has established particular leadership and authority roles within the family. It's interesting, and some of you are old enough to remember uh, um, uh, Dr. Spock uh, from the 1950s and 60s who said that you don't ever discipline a child, you just let them be who they wanna be and just see how that works out. That was, that was egalitarianism from a parent to a child. Come, let us reason together about what we're gonna have for dinner tonight. Okay, Pop-Tarts, that's how that would work out. Very few parents would ever be egalitarian in their application of parenting. I'm not sure why we abrogate that when we come to husbands and wives. Please note, the apostle is not, let me say it as clearly as possible, the apostle is not urging every woman to submit to every man or any husband. The Greek is very specific, to your own husband. If any of you men ask my wife to submit to you, we need to chat. This is to your own husband. Why? Why? Paul tells us why. Because the husband is the head of the wife. Now, when you drill down really deep in the egalitarian and the complementarian debate, it really comes down to this word, kephela, or headship. This is where everything is, is, is battled. Our egalitarian friends would say that headship just means source, that it comes out of, out of you. Well, Eve was taken out of the body of, of Adam. So it's just, it's just talking about source, not leadership. But there's a problem there. And all we have to do is take a simple tour with our Bibles. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul speaks in verses 3 to 12 about this extensively. I mean, let me just highlight that for you. It's the husband's headship that is the theological basis of the wife's submission to such extent that he says, 1 Corinthians 11, 3, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. Stop right there. Christ is the head of every man. Jesus Next phrase, and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. He sandwiches this idea of headship in between a discussion of the Trinity. Christ is the head of man. God is the head of Christ. And in the middle, man is the head of a woman. Please notice, please notice, listen, 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 please. If I was to say to my sons, look up, look up. He is not applying or appealing to culture. That's another egalitarian myth. Well, this was the culture in ancient Rome and in Greco-Roman societies. Paul does not say do that because of culture. He says do that because of creation. Verse eight in 1 Corinthians 11 for the man does not originate from the woman, but the woman from man. For indeed, man was not created from the, for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. And he goes on to talk about, about head coverings. 1 Timothy 2 says the same thing. 
verse 11. A woman must receive quietly instruction with entire submissiveness in the church, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority, those are tandem, over a man, but to remain quiet doesn't mean you don't talk in church. It just remembers that you don't take the teaching elder position over a mixed crowd of men and women. Why? Why, Paul? For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. If we take a very conservative, very conservative, like um, the theologian Usher conservative approach to dating, there was about 4,000 years between the creation and Paul and only 2,000 years between Paul and us. So there was more cultural change before Paul than since Paul. The point I'm trying to make is this is rooted in God's creative design. It is not rooted in cultural application or nuance. The clearest exegetical, lexical, dictionary evidence indicates that while kefe law, head, is sometimes used of source, like the head of a river, always an impersonal object, almost every time it's predominantly the main meaning to be authority over and leadership of. That's what it means to be a head. Here in the context of Ephesians 5, it becomes unreasonable to understand how Paul could mean anything other than authority over. Now listen, I hear how this sounds. It, it, it just got really quiet in here. Is Rick really saying that the husband has authority over the wife? No, I would never say that. Paul did. Um, <laughs> And I'm being serious. It's not source, it's authority. It's unreasonable to think that this is source because Christ is the head of the church in the same statement. These verses discuss the leadership and headship of a husband with his wife and the text clearly teaches that the man is the head of the woman in a marriage relationship and in a marriage relationship in a special way. How so? Well, as Christ is the head of the church. There's our, our paradigm. There, there's our example. The husband is the head of the wife like Christ is the head of the church. And emotionally, I, I have talked to sweet ladies. I remember teaching on this uh, to about a thousand college students out in California. And I finished teaching and a couple of girls charged me like I was a matador um, and uh, just, just said, listen, that, that's not fair. That's not right. That's not who I am. And they, they went on and on and on. And they said, and finally I said, is the, is the problem that you don't understand what Paul is saying or is the problem that you don't like what Paul is saying? They said, well, we don't like it because it's not true. One girl said, but the next, we had this discussion, the next passage says, but Christ is the head of the church. Are you gonna give that same argument to Christ? I will not be submissive to you. We are on the same level. We have no difference in our roles or function. So it's a silly assessment and statement. That's the point Paul's making here. I know how this sounds. I know how it feels. There is a pressure relief valve coming though. 
Christ is the head of the church. This is not the leadership of a dictator. This is not the leadership of an overbearing overlord. And the direction of a husband is to give his wife and his home a place where submission is welcome and enjoyed and blessed. There are two extremes that we need to walk carefully between here, men. Ladies, you can pray for us and encourage us not to fall off on one of these two ditches on, on the side of this road. First is domineering, domineering rather authoritarianism. Oh, you could hear what Paul says and say, I'm the head. I have overbearing leadership. I will not honor my wife in what Peter calls as a co-heir of Christ. I'm in charge. Be quiet, submit, and listen. I know men who've been like that. And I've seen wives destroyed under that kind of leadership. That is heinous. That is satanic. That is not what this passage is calling for. The other ditch on the other side of the road, though, is passive inattention. Passive inattention. This is flattening out the headship so that the unique burden of leadership is not the husband's, but is the man and the wife's. Or maybe willingly let her take the lead, let her take the role, pushing her to take your place as a leader of the home, to make all the significant decisions, and to sit on the couch with a remote control in your hand. So on the one side, domineering, overbearing authoritarianism. We don't want to be that. The other side is just letting go of the steering wheel and just giving up and, and letting our wives run the home which uh, in, in our relationship, which frankly, they're probably more capable in many ways than we are, but that's not the way God's designed it. So what do we do? How do we find the sweet spot in the middle of that? Well, in simpler terms, the sinful extreme of dictatorial leadership and the sinful extreme of abandoned leadership are both prohibited in this passage. How do we know that? How can we encourage one another as husbands to stay away from these extremes, from overbearing lordship or passive non-leadership? This passage tells us by looking to the headship and the leadership of Jesus to the church. Oh, I know many women who are so discouraged under the leadership of their husbands. And probably some for very good reasons. But the reason is that we're not leading like Jesus leads the church. He's the example. He's the paradigm. He's the standard. Male headship is to be led in the character of Jesus Christ. It's to counsel like Jesus would counsel. It's to have convictions like he would have convictions. It's to cooperate with one another just as the Holy Spirit himself cooperates with our sanctification, work out your salvation for God who's at work within you and care. A godly man will recognize that he is called to lead and be sensitive to a woman who is called to follow him. We're gonna see this 
next week. But one of the ways that a woman is the weaker vessel, which has been severely misapplied, one of the reasons she's called the weaker vessel is she has to submit to us. She's in a vulnerable position. Look, vulnerable moment here. I'm studying this all week and I'm thinking, poor Kim. Poor Kim. I need to be more like Christ in my leadership to her. What does this kind of commitment look like? Well, first of all, men, we don't let this leadership go to our, head, our heads. If you walk in and say, dad's home, husband's home, take a knee and give me a bow. Oh, you may not do that like that. Dad comes home, people scurry out of his chair. They get him an iced tea. They put the footstool in. You kind of get the point. Don't let headship go to your head. Jesus, as our head, did not come to be served, but to serve and offer his life as a ransom. It means that we as husbands are sensitive to those who are under our authority, who submit to us. Men, if we really understand this, this is a crushing Reality. It should send us in utter flagrant dependence to the throne of Christ and say, God, help me because this family is following me. It also means we understand authority and submission biblically, not culturally. We're not flashing a sword or rattling a saber or being domineering or being passive. It means we are spiritually mature enough to lead the people God has put closest to us. Verse 24, as the church is submissive to or subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. We'll talk about this in a few weeks. That doesn't mean, you know, uh, uh, go remake my peanut butter and jelly sandwich with a little less jelly. That's not the everything here. It's categorically. It doesn't mean we get to be selective, but we'll come back like that. What does this mean to lead, to have, to have headship, a commitment to headship? It means like Christ, think about this, like Christ, we are a servant leader. Like Christ, we are a shepherd leader. Like Christ, we are a caring leader. Like Christ, we are a sacrificial leader. He laid down his life. Like Christ, we are a selfless leader. And like Christ, we are to be deliberate leaders. Servant, shepherding, caring, sacrificial, selfless, and deliberate I think if I were to have an honest lunch with, with any of you who were to ask, Rick, Rick where do you struggle here? It's in them being, being deliberate. It's the old saying, if you aim at nothing, you hit it every time. What's your plan for leading your wife, man? What's your plan? What's your plan today? What's your plan for Bible study, Bible reading, prayer time, accountability? What's your, your, your plan for discussing things, theological pursuit? 
What's your plan for making decisions? Do you have a protocol where a major decision comes up where you have a a system that you and your precious wife sit down and work through together? Headship doesn't mean that you make all the decisions. Headship means that you take advantage of the suitable helper that God gave you to make those decisions. I just feel this, this crazy balancing act in, in talking about this. Some woman say, headship, I'm the domineering God. Listen, submit, repent. And someone else would say, oh, I wanna be so sensitive, I'm gonna let her lead and I'm gonna get out of the way. In the middle of something different, and it looks like what a Christian looks like responding to Jesus. That's what it looks like. But men, do you, have you taken the mantle of the responsibility for the headship of your wife and children of your home? Do you understand that God will hold you and me accountable for how we have, keyword, pastored our families, cared for them, shepherded them? I told you last week that as we move through this, the series, we are going to need large amounts of grace. Ladies, can I just tell you what's going on in all of our minds as husbands? It goes something like this. Oh, shoot. Oh, man. Oh, I hope Rick preaches for two hours a day so I don't have to have lunch and talk about this. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. No man will look at Ephesians 5 and walk away saying, got that down? Got it wired, cross the finish line. Follow me as I follow Christ in my headship. No man ever has that. We are all flunkies and failures in so many categories of leading you, our wives, and leading you, our children. So please give us grace and an opportunity to repent and to change. And just remember that we're going to get to the ladies in a few weeks, okay? Just remember that. (laughs) Servant leadership, shepherding leadership, caring leadership, sacrificial leadership, selfless leadership, deliberate leadership. That's, That's a look at our Savior and how he leads us as believers. Now, I, I, have, I have to pull the car over for a moment. We're gonna talk about this much more detail in a few weeks, but junior high, senior high, collegiate, young, older, single ladies, please listen. Listen to me as an old gray-haired man say this. When you are choosing someone to wed, you are choosing your marital head and the one to whom you will give your submission to. One of the most precious gifts you will ever give away. Make a good decision. First Peter 3 will tell us that your submission to an ungodly, perhaps unbelieving man may be a ministry that God calls you to because these decisions weren't fully thought through in the beginning or because maybe you were converted after 
after marriage. It's hard to talk about headship without also talking about submission, but we need to divide them out just a little bit. I just want to ask you, man, are, are, are you deliberate about being the head of your home and the leader for your wife? Not of your wife, but for your wife. How would she rank and rate you in the categories of your leadership? Now, if you're like me, you would say, well, on last Thursday, probably pretty good. Friday, let's skip Friday. Uh, last month, okay, last year, you're gonna see peaks and valleys in that. But even with the peaks and the valleys, do you see a definite climb to where you're understanding and applying better and more strategically what God has called us to be as leaders, loving leaders for our wives? And let me say this very candidly. I have not ever spoken to a godly woman, that's an important qualifier, a godly woman who's a wife who did not long for her husband to provide spiritual and domestic and personal leadership in the home. Can I say it as simply as God said it? God designed us to be that way and God designed wives to follow in that wake. The fall has broken both sides of that equation. The fall has made headship misinterpreted and misapplied and the fall has taken submission and turned it into something that the Bible doesn't qualify it as. And that was number one of six. 